Supercharge your health with the Doctor's Kitchen Cookbook by Dr. Rupi Audula. Packed with 100 delicious, easy recipes, plus lots of lifestyle tips and information. Available in all good bookshops. Take your first steps towards optimum health today. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast with me, Dr. Rupi, where we discuss the most important topics and concepts in the medicinal qualities of food and lifestyle. Today, we're going to be talking about eating for your eyes. And I've invited Dr. Lilani, who is an ophthalmologist, an eye surgeon. And we have a really interesting discussion about just what the intersection between nutrition and eye health actually is. And I think it's fascinating because it's not really brought to many people's attention. Make sure you stick around to the end because I come up with a recipe for you guys and I summarize the key points of our discussion. Thank you for coming after your night shift. That that is dedication. I'm I'm really impressed. Thanks. And you, you reminded me that you never sleep on night shifts. You work on site. It's not like you know you just get no. the odd phone call. And, I know no. people always think that we just sit at home and wait for you know a Calasian to come on. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm I'm always scared about calling you guys in the middle of the night uh, for an ophthalmology <laughs> referral because I think I'll be waking you up. But clearly not. Not at all. Not at all. <laughs> so the eating for eyes concept is not really using food like a pill, but an important consideration alongside conventional treatment. So we're not really trying to replace your medications with, oh, this sort of food. There are a number of important studies affirming this relationship between diet and treatment of eye disease, slowing progression for a number of different conditions. So I thought we'd start off with the leading cause of blindness in the Western world, which is age-related macular degeneration. It does affect most of the patients that I see who are over 50. Uh And its prevalence does increase with age. And it usually begins in one eye. And it's quite, it's difficult because patients will not notice it until it actually starts to affect their vision. So it's a painless loss of vision. And it usually affects the central part of your vision. So you'll notice things like reading will become a bit difficult, driving, so using the central bits, or recognising people's faces. So people experience some distortion. They'll come in with blind spots in their field of vision. Those are the kind of things that you'll look out for. And this is quite an interesting field because obviously it's something that affects a huge proportion of the people that you see in clinic. But there's been some really interesting research looking at the intersection between diet and this condition, right? Yeah. So there are two types. The more common type is quite dry. So they're deposits in the central bit of your vision, which is called the macula. And that kind of disease progression takes a long time to progress. That's the disease that basically has been researched and looked into from a diet perspective. Because the other type, which is one in 10, far more aggressive and needs more intervention. So in the dry type, they've done extensive research in terms of how you can change your risk factors with regards to preventing the progression of this disease. Yeah, and this research came out like, it's almost coming up to 20 years ago that they came up with this formulation, but that was really looking at a ton of research before then as well, before they even came up with this formulation. So the study that we're talking about is called the ARID study, and there's been a follow-up study that was done about four, ARIDS two, yeah, yeah, um, which was quite similar to the initial one. They just changed around a few of the vitamins. But what 
uh, was really interesting was that these are components of our general food yeah. from a, a balanced, healthy diet from a Mediterranean perspective. We're looking at dark green leafy vegetables. We're looking at polyphenol rich foods. So it's greens, the yeah, orange carotenoids. and carotenoids yeah. as well, which we find in lots of different food, including things like eggs. I think one of the most important things, uh, the important uh, vitamins that they contained in this study was lutein and zeaxanthin. But we find that in things like egg yolk and dark green leafy vegetables as well. Like spinach, cabbage, broccoli, those kind of things. They found quite a significant reduction in the progression of this particular condition, right? Yeah. It's not something that's preventative. It mm. just delays the progression. There are three categories. So if you're diagnosed with intermediate or advanced, it tends to delay the progression of that in dry macular degeneration. So for people listening to this and those who may have been diagnosed with uh, macular degeneration or know of their parents or family members, is this something that ophthalmologists routinely talk about with regards to vitamin supplementation or change in diet and lifestyle? Yeah, so we do encourage changing lifestyle factors because smoking's also been... Smoking's smoking one of the biggest ones, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we do encourage green leafy vegetables and omega-3 fatty acids as well. So all your nice oily fish. Yeah. Even though it's not prescribed on the NHS, you can get vitamin supplements, which are called ARIDS supplements, and they're different brands. So you can get them over the counter. And I think what's quite interesting is that you can actually achieve the same sort of levels of these vitamins from a diet um, that is quite plentiful in these different sorts of foods, right? For example, you mentioned fatty acids and uh, there's certain types of fatty acids that are concentrated in different uh, parts of the eye. DHA is a type of omega-3, EPA as well. That's really important when it comes to reducing inflammation in these parts of uh, our body as well. So you can get those from walnuts from oily fish and if you're vegan actually you can get it from algae sources as well which is really interesting yes that's actually true we do encourage that in diet and people tend to home in on the fish side of things yeah. but it's important that you brought up vegans as well because you can get it from spinach you can get it from those things and definitely does make a difference i have patients who have delayed and slowed their progression really with that's, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. especially in intermediate stages yeah that's that's great. Is that something that across the board that other people have noticed as well? Or is um, this some a consultant that I worked with in the past? Yeah, he did encourage that. And then also, I had patients who were very meticulous with what they were taking, and really? they they yeah. So obviously, they had a diary, food diary, which is quite nice to yeah, see. And yeah. then they do have that. You can see that progression hasn't changed much, but you know, genetic factors and lifestyle factors play a role as well. So It's amazing these anecdotal experiences because even though it's not massively evidence-based and it's certainly nothing that you can really make huge generalizations about, the small successes of a few people that are really in tune and really enthusiastic about this particular subject is something that kind of spurs me on to talk about it a bit more because the side effect of this is actually that they improve their risk factors for a number of different yeah. conditions. That's the thing. The thing is it's not detrimental. What we're advising is something that's going to do you any harm and if and this the sad thing about this disease is that it is progressive so if you can do these things you will change your health in terms of cholesterol levels and blood pressure and you know your risk of obesity and other cardiovascular risk factors so that's the plus side and you're not if anything you could be improving your vision as well so it does you know help patients when they're told with they're diagnosed with this absolutely absolutely and do you ever come up with any recipes to give them <laughs> I don't. I think you know. I 
think people don't tend to want to cook in London. So sometimes you're trying <laughs> yeah. to have to, you know, give options of different salads. But, you know, being Greek, you love doing things with spinach. And yeah, I've got recipes for that. So you encourage your extra I do, I do have my little, you know, spinach pies and all those <laughs> yeah. things that we try and <laughs> push forward. Yeah, easy on the phyllo pastry. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> so do you have any experience of patients that perhaps have changed their diet in quite a large way and led to benefits with this particular condition? I think I had this lady who just said she could not cook. So it was just easier to just, you know, buy things, take away because it saved time and they were cheaper, which that fair enough. We definitely all have those patients. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I guess, you know, busy lives. But anyway, um, so I just I began with small things. <laughs> I just give her little recipes so initially it was no I don't eat vegetables I was like well you know try let's try fruits so then I'd sneak in some pomegranate seeds with the spinach and you know come you in you got her on pomegranate seeds yeah because they're sweet and they're okay. small and it doesn't sound like a fruit so people think oh especially when they're packaged they think okay so she started that then I'd be like oh you could add some slices of orange in the salad then put some avocado and go oh, I can do various different things with salads like, yeah yes. you essentially got her making her own Buddha bowls yeah. huh? <laughs> that yeah. is pretty Poke revolutionary bowls. yeah <laughs> Pokeballs. And did this have a measurable impact on her perception of how her disease was progressing? Even though so her disease was progressive, she did lose some weight, which is a good thing. Um, she felt better in herself and she was actually more in control. She was looking into things a bit more. She took an interest in her health. I think that's really telling about how that conversation initially around food empowered her and made her a lot more enthusiastic about looking at her own health and taking control of it herself even if you know it was just putting in some pomegranate seeds yeah. or slicing in some orange like segments the fact that that had a downstream effect on how focused she was on her condition and learning about it she probably went on the internet and learned about the different sorts of layers of the eye that's really really interesting because that's going to have knock-on effects on other disease states that do have an impact on the eye as well I think in medicine, there's doctors who are kind of conditioned to prescribing this or, you know, fixing things. And also patients want a quick fix. They almost expect a drop or they almost, you know, they just want something tangible. But food is tangible. So when you do start explaining those things to the ministry, they dismiss it because they don't think that it will impact. But it does. And many conditions in the eyes are related to your, what you take in. I completely resonate with that. As a general practitioner, given we have very short consultation times, eight to nine minutes per patient, the expectation and the culture around going to see the doctor is getting that quick fix. It's going and getting that pill to sort the problem out quickly. Having that conversation around introducing new foods and why this has a long-term impact and downstream impact is something that the clinician has to tread around quite carefully because we have to manage that expectation as well. So that leads us quite nicely on to the subject of cataracts. It's something that I think most people have a relative or, or maybe experiencing themselves. Do you want to just tell us a bit about what cataracts are and, and your experience of them? Cataracts, very basically, little lens in the front of the eye that directs light to the back of your eye. That little lens clouds up with age or changes in metabolic states. So if you're diabetic, for example, if you've got kidney failure, and when that becomes cloudy, that's when your lens becomes a cataractous lens, in essence. From a metabolic perspective, with age-related cataracts, it's the increase in oxidation. 
So there's there's no hard evidence, but it's speculated that it's the oxidative stress that causes changes in the protein material. Right, so the lens yeah. is made out of water and protein, mostly water. But as we age, the protein denatures, so that nice structure that you have in that lens that allows light in changes, the proteins change, and then it becomes a bit hazier. And colors become to dip, start to dim, and that's the result of, they think, oxidative stress on those materials in the lens. And diabetic-related cataracts are potentially using the same mechanism, perhaps accelerated, and also a different mechanism because of glucose states, right? Yeah, so in diabetes, the levels of glucose changes the metabolic state in a person, and so it affects cataracts and just becomes cloudier sooner. So from an evidence-based point of view, uh, we have to be quite honest, it's it's pretty lacking very, in this subject, yeah. isn't it? Very limited. I mean, the studies you've actually, you pointed out to me, they're interesting. They're an interesting read, but I just don't think there's been enough research into it either because of the population size or because people haven't really followed it on because it's a progressive thing. Exactly. So there's, the studies that we're referring to uh, speculate about the oxidative stress as we age and that impact on the lens of the eye which leads to cataracts and also from a diabetic point of view the glucose and how that essentially accelerates the oxidative process again damaging the lens of the eye now in some papers they've actually suggested that if you were to increase your intake of particular vitamins similar to what we're talking about with carotenoids zeaxanthins essentially the types of chemicals that are found in dark green leafy vegetables, colourful vegetables, and also, and citrus fruits, don't forget the citrus, (laughs) and also different sorts of herbs and spices that may have an anti-inflammatory effect, an antioxidant effect, so reducing oxidative stress, and also an anti-glycating effect, so an anti-sugar effect as well. There may be some benefits to be had by having these sorts of things in your diet on cataracts that is really a big leap of faith and i think we need to be honest about that however and this is the opinion i take with a lot of nutritional science it's going to take a long time before we probably have enough evidence to suggest that patients should be doing this and in the meantime the benefits of that kind of diet are undeniable for a lot of other medical problems So we may as well be introducing this into the conversation uh, when it comes to cataracts, not making a claim that it's going to affect your cataracts, but potentially, potentially, there might be some room to improve it or prevent, sorry, prevent it. I think talking about prevention is hard, but definitely delaying the onset, that would be be something that you could potentially look into you could potentially it's going to be hard to do a study though it is to control people's eating habits yeah the studies looking at macular degeneration i mean they're four years old now the the last one was four years old the one before that was over 15 years and that was in the back of research like 20 30 years old and i think a lot of people are really yearning for uh just general advice that they could potentially use and if there are no harmful effects of introducing yeah. this diet, I think it's something that it's we need to entertain. It's definitely something to, you know, to advise people. And especially if they're worried, if a family member's had it, you might be at risk of having it as well. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. The, the good thing about ophthalmology and the industry is that there are really effective treatments for cataracts, right? Yeah, and we should highlight that cataracts are quite an easy procedure and it's very safe. 
there is something to be done. It's not that if you have cataracts, you will never see again. That's exactly. And not it's not case. that you, you're chained to having a, no. a restricted diet the no. rest of your life. But certainly from patient point of view, I've had uh, a lot of young patients who've seen their older family members go through procedures and also have things like macular degeneration. And they want to do anything right now that can help prevent that or stop that from them ever having to experience. Because it's a, a really, it's a huge psychological trauma, isn't it? Blindness. No, it definitely isn't it. You only experience it once it once you actually experience it firsthand or you see someone else suffering with it. Don't also forget that in terms of cataracts, you can have other comorbidities in the eye. So it can be in relation to some steroid juice that could have also caused damage to the back of your eye. Absolutely, yes. So, you yeah. know, those if you, if you are introducing these lifestyle factors, you could be doing some good for the rest of the ocular anatomy in, in a way. So let's talk about dry eye, which uh, is something that I get asked a lot about. And it's not just, you know, my eyes dry today or whatever. It's it's a the condition. Long so term. Yeah, so let, let's, let's define what we mean. I think... Many things fall under that category, but mainly people talk about eye pain or redness or burning sometimes, double vision, blurriness when they're using their screens or contact lens use or just, you know, being in a hot, heated environment at work. Those kind of things bother people a lot. So essentially, it's to do with the number of factors. So you've got a tear film and if it's evaporating too quickly your eye will become dry and it can cause blurred vision it can even cause you know you to think that your visual acute that your vision's gone down basically and you need a change of glasses often i get patients most common complaint is that their eyes are really burning and there's something definitely in their eye because it feels like there's a piece of grit in your eye it's a very uncomfortable yeah, feeling it's a strong from... sensation you're convinced that something's gone into your eye yeah yeah i get loads of people in a&e when i do work in a&e coming in and i'm, I'm sure there's something in my eye. yeah um, so main things are if you're using contact lenses, try and limit your usage to eight hours a day, 10 hours a day. But it also depends on the type of contact lens you're using, if they're rigid, if they're soft and what your opticians obviously advise you to do. If, you've, if, you're, if your eyes are red and painful, do not wear the contact lenses. There's, you might have an infection, so you need to come in and see us. If you don't wear contact lenses, then you might want to look into if you're using too much heat at work, there's a fan on how much screen time you're using because we tend to sit very close to our screens and not change the font sometimes or we're sitting at a distance that's not appropriate and the other thing is when we're using our screens we don't blink as much as we should do that is where that's well recognized and yeah. our blink rate reduces, reduces. Yeah. yes and so so let's talk about blinking what the actual why we blink and what why that leads to benefits to the front of the eye yeah so blinking encourages your tear film basically. You're blinking in order to get rid of certain substances and also the actual tear film has quite important properties from an immune perspective for the eye. If you're not blinking, which is what we, normally when you read a book, you're kind of looking, you're kind of in down gaze, that's your main position. But when you've got a screen, you're exposing the front of your eye much more. It's actually held at a higher level than you would when you read. So you're blinking less, eye becomes dry, your tear film evaporates more. And then you become it becomes dry and painful. So usually we use this 20, 20, 20 rule. 20, 20, 20. Yeah. So you, every 20 minutes, you're supposed to look away from your screen for 20 seconds and look into the distance at 20 feet or six meters if you're 
metric system. <laughs> and that's what you want to do. Every 20 minutes, I know it's not great for people working in offices, but it's yeah. only 20 seconds. So, you know, if you are just staying into the distance. For I think it's seconds. very actionable. Yeah. yeah. I have a confession. Mm -hmm. So I started using contact lenses when I was 13, I think. Okay. And I don't think I was properly told about... Um, or you weren't listening. I probably wasn't <laughs> listening, to be honest. But let's say... Let's blame me. <laughs> let's let's blame me, shall we? Um, and uh, I wasn't hydrating my contact lenses properly. They were daily lenses and I wasn't hydrating them properly. What do you mean? As in, um, so when, I, when they got a bit dry during the day, yeah. I would hydrate them with water. Actual which is That's actual so which dangerous. is the most dangerous yeah. thing you could do and i developed a corneal ulcer when i was 13 and a half 14 i think oh wow um, it was terrible and i knew it was like very near the center of my of vision. vision luckily it was outside but i was treated at more i think i ended up oh. going to moorfields well done and uh well done <laughs> As in getting there yeah. teenager is not the best thing to well, do well this is why I'm, uh, it's kind of like stayed with me throughout my whole life the fact that we need to be so careful about what mm -hmm. we put on the front of our and how we choose to you know use contact lenses and how we actually probably need to take more breaks as well now i'm quite vain and i don't like to use my glasses as much but um but I you have a pair i do have of okay. course i've got a because, pair yeah. yeah any patients do not have a pair of glasses really they yeah. don't have a wow i did not know that mm -hmm. that's interesting yeah so i'm not the only vain person <laughs> But, um, but yeah, no, having regular breaks from contact lenses and making sure that your hands are completely clean. If you're using dailies, that's fine. But it's also been shown that people who use daily lenses don't wash their hands as much because they, because, really? yeah, because you're just taking them out and you're just throwing them away. Oh, yeah? right. So yes, you're less you likely yeah. to sit and do the hand hygiene and clean your hands and you just take them out. So if you're using your daily ones, definitely throw them away. This is actually the advice of a corneal consultant that I used to work for. Store them not in the bathroom, not in the kitchen, so nowhere near any water pipes because okay. the bacteria that will cause the most damaging problems are bacteria that live in water and soil. That so, makes sense. Yeah, so keep them in the bedroom. I'm going to start yeah. not only actioning that advice, but telling people that. I think that's a really... Yeah, I never... He, yeah, he told me this and I thought, oh, okay. I don't know how evidence-based it is, but he clearly has years of experience. So, <laughs> yeah. you, know. you sent me this really interesting documentary about some claims that were being made by some reputable big uh, glasses street, yeah. and high street glasses companies and stuff. Because you had an interest in... Blue light. In blue light, yes, I do. But this is really interesting. So yeah. a lot of people think that our screens are very damaging to the eye. Is there any evidence base behind this? Is this something that we should be like afraid of? Um, I think the hypothesis behind it is the fact that blue light, which is a very short wavelength, can damage the, the retina. Obviously, those wavelengths are known to be harmful. However, you do have natural mechanisms in the eye to protect those wavelengths because your cornea reduces a certain wavelength and your le your lens, your actual lens that we talked about, that also reduces a certain frequency, which are both to do with that blue wavelength of light. And your screen time use and all, all the you know electronic devices you're using, it's such a minimal quantity. It's very negligible that it, it's not enough to cause retinal damage and harmful effects onto the eye. There's no evidence to say that these blue screen filters do anything really. Yeah, apart from potentially have an impact on sleep, which I, yeah, which is where which my interest kind of peaks, yeah. right? Because I think even though we can't suggest that 
blue light emitted from our devices damages the eye directly. But um, the impact on melatonin levels, which is the hormone that peaks towards the end of the day and is inhibited by blue light, that's something that I think a lot of people should be aware of when using their devices late at night in particular. Yeah, so I think using artificial light late in the evening will cause that melatonin peak to delay. So you, you should stop using screens really two to three hours before you go to bed. That's what they say. Otherwise, your your melatonin peak will shift. And then that's going to cause problems with, you know, regulating your temperature, your hormones. Yeah, no, no, it does. It has an impact on uh, hormone regulation. Yeah. Um, it impacts the quality of your sleep. Your sleep. So even if you were to rest for eight to nine hours, the quality of those cycles of sleep that we all go through around three to four in evening of sleep or night of sleep can be impacted. And that can affect your hunger levels the next day. You're more likely to reach for that yeah. high sugary snack. I think the more people dive into the subject, the more scary it can be. And I think it's something that we need to be quite clear on is that all the different subjects that we're talking about today have to be taken to the context of everyone's lifestyle and how important it is to have a balanced mindset when it comes to healthy eating and looking after our health. You know, food, yes, can be medicinal, it can be preventative in lots of different ways, but it's certainly an aspect of our our living that should be enjoyed at the same time. I agree. (laughs) (laughs) You're on a roll there, what can I add? Uh, Okay, fine. The ocular biome. Have okay. you heard about this? No, I was trying to figure, do you, do you mean what's naturally on the eyes and which bacteria just live the, on yes, the eyes? Yes, so, um, so the That's microbiome definitely. and uh, so the population of microbes that live in and around our body, largely in our gut, has probably been the focus of a lot of scientific research over the last 10, 20 years. And it's absolutely exploding when, when it comes to papers and the number of people talking about the subject, particularly with its, with regard to health. But I've come across some papers about how the, the different types of microbes that live on the surface of our our eyes mm-hmm. can be impacted by certain things. So most notably contact lens. Sorry to go back to contact yeah, lens. Yeah, wearing, I'm that's... wearing contact lenses right now. <laughs> but certainly the micro population is changed by contact lens use. And that potentially could put us at higher risk of infections as well. But there's probably very lacking research from ways in which we can improve the population of microbes on the surface of the eye. So in terms of... Um... There's a condition. So dry eye also ties in with blepharitis. So that in general terms, that just means inflammation of your eyelashes and lids. And you can get styes, chalasia, whatever your doctors describe, little swellings on your eyelids as being. And that's the result of, you know, infections because of the bacteria that lives on your eyelashes. And flaxseed has been shown to be quite useful. Really? Yeah. I am yeah. With helping, yeah. Please carry on. Tell me a bit more about this. I haven't heard about this. <laughs> no, usually we treat people with um, with lubricants and warm compresses. So you're, you're advised to use warm flannels just for 10 seconds, twice in the morning. If you can in the evening, that's great. And you just rest that on your eyes and try and massage downwards towards the lash line to get rid of any blocked glands, which are covered in little bacteria that cause these dry eye and pa- painful eyes. Um, but flaxseed helps with you know with that ocular surface and the lash line and 
reducing your prefritis problems. So how, are we talking about ingesting it? But ingesting flaxseed, yeah, not are, using it topically. You, you're not getting well. You more. can have masks. There are masks that some. I had some <laughs> really? consultants who. Had, yeah, you can. You can. You can get masks that have flaxseed in them that you can heat and put on your eyelids. And I had no yeah. idea about this. This is complete news to me. And and as well as ingestion as well, flax ingestion. Yeah, some people say that it does help. Does that tie into the fact that it might be because of the fatty acids that yeah. we find in flax? So particular fatty acids that we've already mentioned, omega-3, but particular types, so uh, EPA and DHA, they may have a role in blepharitis, inflammation. This is me going off on it because these are just, these are things that we that we advise patients. So I, I, I personally haven't looked into the research of this particularly, but your tear film's made up of three layers. So you've got like a mucousy layer, watery layer and a lipid layer. So maybe that can help with improving those three components of your tear film. That's super interesting. I think a lot of people will find that. <laughs> the most anyone's been excited about my... And that, well, anything my, to do with flaxseed, I mean... to do with tear film. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> most patients switch off, they're like, yeah, okay, doctor. Yeah, so yeah okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. She's one of those doctors. She likes the healthy lifestyle. She likes lifestyle. the holistic approach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you, get, do you have to deal with that quite a bit? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I get cut off patients and like, uh, okay, so are you not going to give me something now? Right, <laughs> I'm just like, right. oh, we've just talked about the tip. <laughs> Man, I have lots of patients in GP land with plenty of drops that you guys prescribe them and they, you know, they do not like taking them. Compliance is an issue as well. Well, FYI, for glaucoma, you do need to take yeah, them lifelong. Yeah, Please no, do no, not definitely. stop your glaucoma yeah, yeah. drops. But yeah, I think, yeah. It's just annoying, but at the end of the day, it's it's better than taking a pill. Yes, yeah, no, I understand. It's just or going under the knife. Yeah, or going under the knife. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. So one of the things that you probably see quite a lot of you have a, a whole clinic dedicated to yes. diabetic retinopathy. Yeah, because it affects quite a considerable amount of diabetics. So do you want to just explain exactly? That yeah, is? so diabetics really fall under two categories: so type one or type two, and both categories are prone to getting diabetic retinopathy which is basically when the diabetes affects your eyes because it does that's something that people sometimes don't realize um actually a lot of people don't realize just how widespread diabetes in general can be it can literally affect every single organ in your body yeah retinopathy is what we we don't want retinopathy is when it affects the eye and it can lead to blindness you're you know 20 times more at risk of becoming blind if you have that in the back of your eye so why we have these clinics is we just want to monitor patients to make sure that they're not developing any of those signs. What patients will notice sometimes is that they might lose parts of their vision because they've had, you can get bleeds and nasty things like that. Or they might just be developing cataracts quite quickly and then we need to take care of that. But thinking in with lifestyle and what we actually do advise the patients a lot is um, controlling their sugar levels. So lifestyle is a huge factor because you can, it has been shown that you definitely can reduce considerably your risk of getting diabetic retinopathy in the eye if you control your lifestyle factors, so your diet especially. So there's, yeah, there's clearly, there's a whole bunch of different evidence-based articles looking at how improving glycemic control, which we measure with a blood test called HbA1c, and improving uh, risk outcomes. Is there anything that you've come across where their retinopathy has been improved at all? We get patients at early stages and 
they're obviously worried because they see the images, you know, of horrible blood vessels. Because you show them, yeah, don't you? Yeah, I show them yeah. because it helps. I think, I think it, it, makes yeah, it, it definitely paints an image, right? Yeah, because Literally. otherwise, you, if you've never seen the back of an eye, it's quite hard to understand what's going on. Yes. Especially in the early stages, we do explain to them that it can be reversible, certain certain types of changes. And that almost sets a target for them. So they they want, they say, oh, what can I do? So, you know, improve your diet, you know, definitely see your GP and your diabetic nurse because most of them sometimes don't attend, I think, for a lot of their appointments. Um, they don't even monitor their glucose levels on their own. Um, obviously, another thing that we need to highlight is extremely tight control has not been shown to be a good thing. So it's more of a gradual thing and incorporating exercise. So a sedentary lifestyle and a poor diet has definitely, definitely been shown as a way forwards for getting very, very bad eyesight. I, uh, I, I, I think that's a really important point to note because there's lots of different studies across the board that show tight sugar control mm-hmm. using medications or insulin even has not been shown to improve outcomes amongst a whole other thing. So actually, really the focus is on being as well as possible using diet and lifestyle. Mm-hmm. I've actually written about this on my blog, thedoctorskitchen.com and, and there's a whole section on different tips that you can do to improve uh, diabetes control type two i should print them out and give them to my face. you should yeah. yeah maybe i'll make one <laughs> that was an awesome chat with dr lani who is brilliant uh, i love the fact that she's so well researched she's looked into nutrition lifestyle and these are the key points that we talked about so a nutrient dense diet with particular attention to xanthophils to carotenoids that we find in dark green so that's cavolo nero it's different sorts of uh, cabbage like savoy cabbage you also find them in yellow and orange foods as well you may if you do have certain types of eye conditions be told to take supplements by your eye doctor as well so there's something to bear in mind Having a diet that consists largely of plants is something that you can do to reduce oxidative stress. So actually the most anti-inflammatory of all diets is something close to a vegetarian diet. It doesn't mean removing meat completely, but having more plants on our plates is certainly the way to go. We talked about fatty acids in particular, DHA and EPA. And we find these in wild fish. You can also find it in algae supplements as well. And you can also find it in nuts and seeds, in particular, walnuts, chia seeds. A dish I recommend from my cookbook is the chickpea tabbouleh. It's got lots of parsley in, which is a great source of some of those phytochemicals that we talked about, in particular, luteolin. You can find my guest, Dr. Lalani, at her Instagram handle, surgeons underscore I underscore view. And the links will be on my website, thedoctorskitchen.com as well. 